0: that interest in anonymity was really I guess being driven by this notion that the ego that I had constructed um, the CEO of a hot startup company that was making lots of money and throwing big parties that that was ephemeral you know it was a it was a veneer um, and I had built that character to play a specific role and that character was dying while on stage and I don't think the character wanted to die with, without the curtains drawn first. And so going to New York in a way was drawing the curtains on that DC stage so that as I began to exit this business and this, this character and this role, um, I could do it maybe with a bit more grace or maybe at least I wanted to feel a little safer doing it.
1: Hey, this is your host, Debbie Weil. Welcome to Gap Year for Grownups, a podcast for those who believe in a timeout to reinvent your life, especially at 50 plus when you're figuring out what comes next, and for anybody being forced right now to reinvent yourself. Today, I talk with Peter Corbett, an ex-CEO who made a boatload of money when he sold his tech company. He moved to Brooklyn from D.C., And is now doing something completely different. I thought we could learn something from his reinvention. Peter was a young guy in his 20s when I knew him back in my DC tech days, which was from the 90s up to 2013. He was very well known in DC's tech community as the founder and CEO of iStrategy Labs. They were one of the first digital marketing agencies known for their creativity. They won lots of awards and the company grew to have fortune 500 clients. It was a remarkable success story. But after almost 10 years of running the company, he moved to New York to open an office there. And shortly after realized he had enough of the CEO life. It wasn't who he really was. And he sold the company for tens of millions of dollars. Now he's 39 and living a completely different life. He's a Zen hospice practitioner, volunteering at several hospitals in Brooklyn. And together we talk about how he found this new path, how meditation plays a crucial role for him, and why he thinks it's so important to contemplate mortality. This is not a coronavirus episode, but the virus and the pain it's causing for so many people is hovering in the background. Peter and I talk about a bunch of things, including white privilege and what that means to him. It really was a pleasure to reconnect with an old friend I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Let's jump in.
0: Peter, welcome to the show. So good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: This is really a trip down memory lane, but let's jump right in to where we are now. So you were very young when I knew you in D.C., and you founded and run iStrategy Labs, a digital agency, and you sold that moved to New York or moved to New York and then sold it and now you live in Brooklyn and you have a completely different life uh, right. and you're still not very old. You told me you're 39, so you've gone from, you know, wonderkin to still a young person, you know, phase two mm. of your life or it's mm-hmm. totally different. Tell us how that
0: works. Sure. Yeah, I was 27 when I started the business. I had gotten laid off a month before the financial crisis started. And I grew that company you mentioned by Strategy labs to about hundred employees and you know, 30 of the fortune 500 were clients and I sold it for tens of millions of dollars to a publicly traded company. And all the while, especially towards the last few years, something in me wanted to come out. It didn't feel right that I was doing these ephemeral marketing campaigns and social media campaigns to get people to buy cars and beer and jeans. And I didn't know what that was that wanted to come out. And it turned out that after I retired from I Strategy Labs in 2018, I could really focus. I, I deepened my Zen practice. Uh, I've been sort of a meditator for probably about 20 years now. And I saw that I, it felt right to live a life of service. That's what felt right. And the way that I serve today, sort of twofold. Uh, I'm a Zen hospice practitioner, so I work with the sick and dying. I go and volunteer at the Brooklyn hospital and work in the ER there uh, and then go upstairs where there are people in ICUs of all kinds. And then the other way of service really remains to be in the entrepreneurial um, arena. Just this past two weeks, uh, you know, while we're recording this podcast, we've got the the COVID-19 outbreak happening. I've been on calls with hundreds, literally hundreds of entrepreneurs talking with them, hearing how they're feeling because we all often feel that our businesses are us and that if our businesses are dying we're dying so yeah i'm i'm living a what's called a zen life focused on um taking care of other people if i can
1: still take take us back before we um get too much into this anxious present moment because this really is extraordinary for me thinking about meeting you when you were in your late 20s Mm -hmm. and we had a kind of a digital tech scene in dc and I had this weird problem, which was for some reason I thought of myself as a thirty-year-old white male. I, I have no idea why, but I just felt totally comfortable with you guys. Of course, I was a fifty-something yeah. woman, and now I'm even older. I'm sixty-eight. Um, and we, there was this whole world in DC, and you were, a, you know, you were a pivotal player. So
0: mm-hmm. I just, I want to
1: track a little more closely. How did you sure. move from one to another, or first just, just for a moment, reminisce about that? the tech scene in DC? Because it was pretty cool.
0: Those were good times. You know, my role was as essentially like the Pied Piper, right? I was like a community organizer. I'd host happy hours where I think the biggest one was like 2,200 people came out. You probably were there. I'm sure you were there. Uh, And then I created a festival. I think we had 12,000 people attend And then I founded the DC Tech Meetup, which still runs, well, it's paused at the moment during the virus outbreak, but 25,000 members. So I loved bringing people together, having them bump into each other, find an investor, find a co-founder, find their next hire. Uh, Many people found their boyfriends and girlfriends and wives and husbands. And yeah, there was a real electric energy uh, running through DC. Those days were 2007 to about, I wanna say 2013 or so. And everything was new, you know, social technology was exploding, open source was exploding. um, And there was just so much to do and so many people to meet. I just wanted to meet everybody because I generally love people. So I figured out uh, how to sort of tie that to the business case I had, which was like, we do marketing work and technology development. So when I hosted these things, people would want to hire us. So it was like having the best job in the world for me for a long time.
1: But then you moved to New York. You said uh, we were talking just before we started recording and you, you said to start a, a New York office. Now, what was that? Mm-hmm. Like, totally exciting? Or were you sort of leaving behind this amazing life you'd built in DC? Yeah.
0: yeah two, there's two parts to that. Um, you know, New York is my hometown. My family immigrated through Ellis Island a hundred years ago. I, always, I started my career here. I'd lived here. This is my third tour of duty, I guess I would say, living in New York. And so my plan was always to get back to New York at some point. And I just, the company got big enough that I could go. So I think we were about 70 people. Maybe we're doing uh, maybe 12 or 13 million in revenue or something like that. So I went up to New York to start the office and that's that's fine. And that's what I told my team. And that's what I told the world because it was a big it was a big thing for me to leave DC because I was so, I guess, visible. For better or for worse, I, you know, if I walked down the street in DuPont Circle, I'd get stopped by strangers and they'd want to pitch me their startup or talk about marketing or whatever, and that was cool. I was happy to talk with them. And then going to New York, I, I regained an anonymity that I didn't know I had lost, and I didn't realize that anonymity was actually a wonderful thing in this age of social media. And that interest in anonymity was really, I guess being driven by this notion that the ego that I had constructed um, the CEO of a hot startup company that was making lots of money and throwing big parties, that that was ephemeral, you know, it was a, it was a veneer. Um, and I had built that character to play a specific role and that character was dying while on stage and I don't think the character wanted to die with without the curtains drawn first and so going to New York in a way was drawing the curtains on that DC stage so that as I began to exit this business and this this character and this role um, I could do it maybe with a bit more grace or maybe at least I wanted to feel a little safer doing it so that's the real deep answer I guess I would give you.
1: that's that's pretty interesting because for those of us you know on the outside still following you although again i left dc in 2013 uh we had no idea so i i didn't even know Mm. that you were uh, a meditator um so boy you hid that pretty well when you were on stage Uh and your tech role so all right so so keep going a little bit because just the way this plays out i think is is useful for anyone listening Mm -hmm. who's um Thinking about maybe not just a gap year, but what I call a gap life, when you really pivot and do something different, because we all talk about that. Mm. Oh, wouldn't it be cool Mm. if some Mm. of us are 55 or 60 when we say that, and you, of course, were, I don't know, 35. So how did you slowly go from relishing anonymity to realizing, oh, you just really wanted to live differently?
0: Mm. Well, it, it took a deepening of my my Zen practice to see that. Um, and for those who are not aware of what that entails, um, simply sitting in meditation each morning is the sort of the basics of it, um, which doesn't sound so you know profound. Um, but in fact, if you just sit quietly and be as still as possible with yourself, um, you're sort of shown you're shown all of it, you're shown the true nature of this whole reality. And that takes a lot of time, takes a lot of looking. And I'm not suggesting I see the true nature of all things, I just see more clearly some things. And the things that I began seeing was just what I described, you know, that I was an actor on the stage in a certain way, that I was driven by the uh, accumulation of wealth, because I had grown up, you know, without money, you know, I had a a single mother of three, uh, trying to raise us through the difficult 80s and 90s. And, and she was very fortunate to marry a wonderful man who's now my my dad, my stepdad, but my dad. And um, and I f- tried to fill that void. And I filled it with money and attention. Um, and by sitting enough, quietly enough, um, with these Zen practices, I began to see that, in fact, I don't need money and and, you know, fame or any of those things to be whole and happy. I'm already whole and happy. Uh, and sure, that's easy for me to say. I should say I, I'm speaking from a position of incredible privilege. I mean, I have all of the, almost all of the privileges one can have. I'm white, male, heterosexual, wealthy, living in America, speaking English uh, and the list goes on. So that, that also is my, my karma, as we say, that is, is both a privilege and in, in our culture, it's also a cross to bear. I bear it into every room and need to recognize it every time. So um, that unfolding, I think really rapidly um, went apace when I started visiting sick and dying patients in the hospital. And the reason is that um, all of the skills that I learned as CEO are not useful there. And that character that you may have met, who is me also. I'm not saying that's not me. It's just it's just a, a facet, like a diamond has many facets. You might have seen one or two sides of it. Um, that's not useful in a caretaking practice, right? No one wants a bombastic MC up on stage when they're visiting someone who just got stabbed 17 times in the ER, you know? So I, I specifically chose that path in order to balance back the the things I had learned as the CEO of a rapidly growing company who was, you know, I was compassionate and, and um, loved my employees, but I was ruthless. And that was in a good way, not in a, not in a like screwing people over way. I mean like ruthless, like you would be like, Holy shit. Like I, I want to learn from this guy, but that closes down your heart quite a bit. And uh, so this, this hospice practice is really about heart opening.
1: Wow. That, well, that makes me think of two questions. One is about what drew you to the, to the sick and dying. And the second is, but answer this one first. There are those listening who might be saying, well, he made millions of dollars. Of course he's got time to sit around and meditate every morning. Um, You know, how can, how can the rest of us do that? And so you talk about the cross to bear, you know, as you, as you enter a room, uh, I mean, tell me honestly, is it that you've made millions of dollars or is it that you're a white male?
0: It's all of the things, I mean, the cross is made of gold and it's got jewels in it, and but it's heavy, um, like all of ours are, um, it's that I'm white, it's that I'm male, it's that I've realized that I'm white. I'm not sure, Debbie, if you've dug into what it means to be white. I mm-hmm. mean, we think that you could say, oh yeah, well, I'm a white guy. But what does that mean? It means that I directly benefit from a racist system. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. I just thought, I thought I lived in a meritocracy. That's what they told me. You know, I went to a great college. I went to Emory, I went to business school. I thought I was getting through everything because I was so smart and, and I worked hard. I really, I, honestly, I probably worked harder than, than most people I know. So I thought, oh, okay, you know, it's a meritocracy. But then when I talked to my friends who are people of color who are just as smart as I am, who work just as smart as I am, uh, just as hard as I do, they didn't get as far as I did in the little success climbing game. And why? It's either purely my white privilege or it's a combination of that and luck. So either way, I shouldn't take too much credit for it. So that that white cross to bear is so interesting and is something that all white people need to be looking at. And if they want to, I'd encourage you to read a book called White Fragility really blew my mind just totally blew my mind written by a white person um, about waking up to being white and I feel like that's the that's the mission that all of us who we think you know may or may not be progressive or liberal uh, or at least conscientious people need to do right now we need to realize what it, it means to be white.
1: Well I'll put that in the show notes and but that was a good question that mm. you ask me, you know, am I aware enough of it? Uh, probably not. You know, mm. being a, a white um, upper middle class, well educated woman, I don't actually walk around thinking that that's a cross to bear. But mm. but that's a very deep point you're making. It's mm. very important, I think. All right, we'll take us a little bit back because you mentioned uh, earlier again, before we started the recording, that you realized you felt drawn to the sick and dying, and somehow Mm -hmm. you were going to take your Zen practice to that. But uh, tell us, how did that happen?
0: Why? Yeah, I um, always, since I was a little kid, um, I had like, I used to go volunteer nursing homes because I liked to be around old people. I don't know why. I just liked cheering them up and hanging out with them. And I, I was raised partially by my grandparents, maybe that's why. And and so I just, it's something comfortable, comforting to me to be around people who are, um, you know, who are much older than me. And so I, I guess I had a vision, some might say. Uh, I had a dream and um, I saw all of my friends dying in their various states. I saw them in their hospital beds and they're intubated and ventilated and um, for various things. And I saw myself visiting them. And I realized that, of course, they're all gonna die. Like, we all are. Uh, If you know someone that's not going to, please let me know because I'd really like to talk to them. Um, And my family's going to die. My parents are gonna die. My wife's gonna die. And I want to, I wanted to develop a skill that could be a gift in those moments to be able to show up at the bedside and be fully present and there for them. And it turns out that in our culture, because we, we tend to hide the old and sick and dying away and don't really want to face it that, you know, there's not a huge pool of people that are just great at showing up when someone's dying. Even, you know, showing up at the hospital room and giving the gift of flowers, and then kind of getting out of there real quick—that's not quite. An, that's not quite enough. We've got a lot more capacity. So, it turns out there are training programs, and they're the one I'm in is called Foundations in Contemplative Care by the uh, New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. It's led by two wonderful sensei, two Buddhist monks, and uh, yeah, we show up. Um, we are present for people's suffering we're not trying to heal them. We're not trying to fix them. We're not trying to tell them it's going to be okay. And it turns out that just being there with them sitting by their side is, is a rare gift that they don't often get. And so a lot of my time also now is spent working with the families of people who are dying. Um, I've done that twice in the past week, even though I can only do it through video calls now because of the coronavirus outbreak. And, um, yeah, it's it's spiritual care. That's the title of the hospital. I'm a spiritual care volunteer, and I'm not a religious person. <laughs> so I, who knew I was going to be a spiritual care provider?
1: Well, I think it sounds, the way you describe it, it, it sounds just like a very natural progression, and I guess maybe that's what's mm. fascinating about it. But you did mention old people and mm-hmm. the coronavirus, and what do you think about, yeah. I don't know whether it's really a discussion or it's below the surface, but this idea that you know we've seen somewhere, maybe it's mostly social media that, well, it's okay. It's just mostly going to be old people, people over. It depends how people define it. People over 60, mm. over 70, yeah. over 80 who are going to die. So you know, whatever. What what do you what do you make of that? Whether you want to call it a meme or whatever.
0: Mm. Well the first thing is it's fake news. <laughs> I'm sorry to use that phrase. Um it's fake news. I mean I I'm, I'm here in Brooklyn, uh, New York state, 55% of the cases are under 50 years old. So um and the two people that I know that have died of uh coronavirus so far um which are two degrees of separation for me so they're not direct relationships. Um one was 34 years old. Oof. So this this is fake news. Um, the, uh, but where you're, where I think you're going with that question is, is somehow the older generation more disposable, right? Do we think that it's like, okay, if the older people die and, you know, culturally, we tend to think like, oh, they lived a long life, right? Like, oh, it, you know, and I can understand that. Um, it doesn't make it any less painful to people. Um, though I will say my grandmother of hundred years old died last month and, And we were able to really celebrate, you know, and I've had, um, I guess I should have said this uh, earlier. I've had about almost 20 friends, I guess, die in the last 20 years. So I'm used to funerals and and I'm used to younger people dying. So when an older person dies in my life, it's like, it's more of a celebration. It's hard to celebrate a 25 year old hanging themselves, which I've had happen a few times uh, among Mm. my friends.
1: Do you have any tips for those of us um, who've maybe been thinking about, gee, I should, done a little meditating, but I should do more, or, I don't know, tips for this kind of quiet mind that you cultivate? Oh, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, The first thing is it's really not that hard. You just sit and you follow your breath. And what I mean by follow your breath is um, you just count, you try to count to 10. Without having a thought. And if a thought comes up, that's okay. Just as soon as you remember that you're thinking, uh, just go back to trying to count to 10 again. Uh, That's sort of the basics of Zazen. And there's all sorts of like, you know, how to have the right posture and all that. And you can look at that on YouTube. Um, And you know, it's going to suck, I'll tell you. For most people, it's going to absolutely suck the first few times because your mind is going to go wild, right? It's like if you finally sit down on the edge of a, a lake and you actually look at the surface of it, it's not still. It's getting blown around by the wind, and there's ducks paddling around, and there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on. And it takes a a long time to get that lake to be still, to get your mind to be still enough to truly reflect the nature of reality. And that's why we practice. We want to still the mind so we can see clearly. Um, I will say it is the most rewarding thing that I know of. And in this this wild time, this this coronavirus outbreak time, uh, it is the thing that is getting my wife and I through this with you know any kind of mental health and sanity. And I'm really, I can feel the pain and suffering that people may feel that don't have a practice like that. I just hope they come to it somehow because it truly, truly helps. Um, I think the guided meditations that you can get through apps like Headspace and Calm, those are good. I, I kind of liken that to, it's like fast food, you know? We're not the worst <laughs> fast food. It's not the worst fast food, it's just like, it's easy and like, you know, like it'll satisfy you and that's cool. But like, you're not gonna build a, like a real solid, I will say hardcore in a good way, meditation practice with that. In fact, like I can't even listen to guided meditation. It just, it's, it's too much talking. I'd like zero talking (laughs) please have let me have zero talking so that's one one thing i'd say and then also um in the context of coronavirus i think it's really important to contemplate your own mortality Um, we should be doing this every day anyway but now is the time and we came into this outbreak and i thought you know i'm a hospital practitioner like i've already come to come to peace with my own death. And I, I had thought that and felt that for so long. And then I would feel these little pangs of fear and anxiety rise up and through my meditation, I'll sit and I go, what is it? What's going on? I'm like, Oh dude, you're not, you're not okay with dying. You're, and I'm like, I'm not, I thought I was. So there's an app called um, we croak like the frog, like a frog croaks. So we croak and it will send you little reminders each day that you're going to die someday <laughs> and it has a quote there'll be some quotes by some no. yeah that's okay some quote by a famous writer and and it's important to remember that and the reason why is it dissipates the fear of death and it it truly makes you appreciate every day and the people around you Well, Peter, I like, on death? Yeah, i'm sorry go ahead i would i would meditate on death right yeah. now i mean it's so important yeah.
1: Well, I like somehow that, um, although you said you don't like Headspace and I, by the way, I call that Andy. I say, hey, I'm gonna go listen to Andy, whatever his <laughs> name is, unpronounceable Headspace. Um, and yet you did mention an app, WeCroak, that just sort of gave me a giggle because mm-hmm. it's a little bit little bit of your old life. Well, um, this was very helpful and, and mm-hmm. useful and and I have to say, I'm really very impressed having known you when you were very young and you're still what I would call young and and i think we can i I just there's a lot to chew on here and i'll put put all this stuff in the in the show notes and i'm so glad we reconnected Uh, i'll also put your Mm -hmm. is there a sign up for your newsletter where you send comfort reading so i'll put that in the show notes
0: too yeah there i send out a, a little newsletter through the platform called substack and the url is still rush Stillrush.substack.com.
1: All right. Well, I'll put that in there too. Well, thank you so much for for talking with us. This was Peter. I really, really enjoyed this.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you. That's a wrap for this episode of Gap Year for Grownups. If you're feeling inspired, you can leave a review on iTunes. It really means a lot. And if you've got ideas for future shows or topics, you can email me at thegapyearpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, however you want to reimagine your life, now is the moment. Don't wait. This is Debbie, your host. Till next time.